You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to Strange Familiars. If you have a story of an encounter with something strange, ghosts, cryptids, UFOs, we'd love to hear your story. You can email us at strangefamiliarspodcast at gmail.com. And you can always find all of our contact information at strangefamiliars.com. And before we get going tonight, I want to thank Maddie Goad. She did something really cool. She did a piece of Flannel Man art, which is awesome, by the way. We'll be using it for an upcoming episode. But Maddie sold this on her Etsy shop, and she donated the money to Strange Familiars. It was a really awesome, super nice way to help. And another Strange Familiars patron, TJ, he's the one who bought the image, so it's pretty neat that it stays in the family. Thank you, Maddie. If you want to see Maddie's artwork, her Instagram is maddie.victoria, M-A-T-T-I-E dot V-I-C-T-O-R-I-A. A little bit later, we're going to be talking with John Olson about his books, Stranger Bridgerland and Beyond Stranger Bridgerland. But I want to start tonight's show with something a listener sent me. This is 
a story that was handed down in his family. It was an experience his grandmother had. And he contacted me originally and said, have you, have you ever heard of anything like this? I said, well, maybe it, maybe it sounds like a Bigfoot encounter. I'm not sure exactly what it is. But there were some certain elements to it that kind of make it pretty strange and very, very interesting. His family wanted to keep this anonymous, and that's fine. So I'll just use his first name and last initial. It's Daniel M. After we started talking about it a little bit, he talked to his mother, and she actually uncovered a letter his grandmother had written about the experience. With their kind permission, I'm going to read it tonight. I think it's amazing that it's in his grandmother's own words. He actually just sent me photograph copies of the letter. It's typewritten. You can tell it's on old paper. It's the real deal. So we get to hear this experience in her own words from another time. In 1929, my family lived in eastern Pennsylvania, in a small country town. My two sisters and I roamed the surrounding woods with no fear. In the fall of the year, when all the leaves were on the ground, we would take a large paper flour sack and look for hickory nuts, which my mother would use all winter long for baking. We knew where some of these hickory nut trees were, most deep in the woods. We had about a half a bag full and went to another, as they were far apart, sometimes half a mile. After some hiking through the leaves and deep woods, we came to the one we sought. We started to part the leaves and find the nuts. Our bag was sitting on the ground underneath the tree. All at once, we heard the most ungodly cry. It sounded as if someone or something was in terrible agony. It seemed to be in the distance, and knowing no fear, after looking at each other, we continued our search for nuts. The property we were on belonged to a retired minister who also rented our house. He had put up a fence about six feet from the tree we were at. It was a five-foot chicken wire fence. As we searched for the nuts, every few minutes we would hear the cries, and they seemed to be coming closer. Finally, the last one was so near and so horrible, we turned to face the direction in which it came. The moaning was more continuous, but we knew it was on the other side of the fence. We stood transfixed, shaking and listening. All at once I saw the thing. It was huge and all white, with shaggy hair all over it. No trace of a face. No shape except that it looked like a polar bear. It was dragging itself through the leaves. The hair covered it completely. You couldn't see the eyes, nose, or mouth. After what seemed like an eternity, it reached the fence. Then I saw it had claws, which were covered with white hair also. When it had pulled itself up with its hind feet on the ground, its front feet were on the top of the fence. It was still moaning. With a gasp, I turned to speak to my sisters. They had been so scared they had run, leaving me alone. With one last look at the thing trying to get over the fence, I turned and ran, and never stopped until I got home. After telling my mother, she tried to quiet our fears, but finding she couldn't, she called the minister, and she put us in his car, and we drove down the dirt road until we got to the part of the woods where it was. We walked through the fallen leaves and branches and reached the tree where our bag sat still filled with hickory nuts. There was no sign of the creature. 
There was no trail which it should have left behind when it was dragging itself. There was no white fur on the fence where it climbed. It had vanished. But whatever it was, I have never before or since seen anything that even resembled it slightly. We never went in that part of the woods again. So I think this is an incredible piece of family history. I think it's amazing that Daniel's grandmother wrote it down for the family to have. They no longer live in Pennsylvania, but I think it's interesting that this happened in Pennsylvania. It's a white creature. She doesn't necessarily mention that it was upright, so who's to say if it was a Sasquatch? But I told Daniel we'd put the word out, and we'd put the story out, and we'd see if anyone else has experienced or seen anything like this or has any ideas as to what it could be. Daniel was especially interested in the fact that it seemed to be injured or hurt, moaning, and it was having trouble getting over the fence. Besides sharing what is a really awesome encounter with you all, I thought it's amazing just to get this idea out there of sharing these weird experiences that are maybe family histories, and maybe somewhere someone else has a letter from their grandmother or a family story that they'd want to share, because these are the kinds of stories that can get lost probably easier than almost any other story, because it's the weird stuff, and sometimes people don't like to tell them. So if you have something in your family and you'd like to share it with us, I'd love to make this a semi-regular segment on Strange Familiars. I think it'd be really, really amazing. And I want to thank Daniel and his family once again for allowing me to share this incredible story. Now let's go to John Olson and talk to him about his books Stranger Bridgeland and Beyond Stranger Bridgeland. John shares some great stories with us from both of his books. We're talking with John Olson, who has written so far two books, or do you have more than two books? Um, yeah, two books so far, and then I'm working on my third book right now. So The two books are Stranger Bridgerland and Beyond Stranger Bridgerland. Is the third one going to be Beyond Beyond Stranger Bridgerland? <laughs> you know, I'm kind of toying with the, the name right now a little bit. I, I'm thinking about Stranger West or something like that because as I've written the books and, and they've gotten out there and I've collected more stories and talked to more people. The range just gets bigger and bigger. And so a lot of these stories that for my next book are from all over the Western United States again. So I was going to ask if you found your, your territory expanding a little bit as uh, a, yeah. yeah, that's the, it happened with the podcast too. You know, we started uh, not intentionally very local, but just, you know, it was easy to get to local places and I knew, right. knew the local legends and then it kind of spreads from there. Right, yeah, it it just kind of gets bigger and bigger as as people read your books and and as you know people hear your like you say your podcast and it just gets a little bit bigger. So, so what is Bridgerland? So, um, Bridgerland is the northern part of Utah, and 
it's, it's it actually encounters the three northern counties, and they call it Bridgerland because it was uh, originally kind of um, investigated by a trapper named Jim Bridger, and uh, he was the one that kind of explored it. Was the first white man to go and explore the northern part, and he helped a lot of the pioneers later on to navigate how to go, where would be the best place to settle. So they kind of officially, unofficially call the northern part of Utah Bridgerland. And since that's where I grew up, and that's where the, you know, from my first book and the vast majority of my stories from my first book came from northern Utah, I decided to, to go with the name Bridgerland. Bridgerland. Okay, mm-hmm. Bridgerland. good. I'm, I'm yep. learning how to pronounce it like a local because... Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> we have that here, which if you're from Pennsylvania, or at least from south central Pennsylvania, you say Lancaster, but uh-huh. everywhere else they say Lancaster. Lancaster, right. Yeah, yeah. And, and people say, you don't, you pronounce that differently. Like, well, you, you pronounce it the way the, the locals do. There's right. A, there's a town in Maryland not far from here that's, it has a French name, which if it was probably pronounced in France, it would be Av de Gras, but it's Haver de Grace because that's what the people there call it. It's, it's, they oh, call it right. Haver de Grace, Maryland. <laughs> right. So. There's, a, there's a small town not far from here. It's, it's pronounced Manaway. But it's spelled out Mantua, mm-hmm. so you know if anybody's not from here, they're like, "I'm looking for Mantua." And right. You kind of laugh. You're like, "No, nah, it's it's called Manaway." But yeah, here, you know, this is how you get there. So yeah, it's <laughs> interesting how local dialect changes everything. So yeah, yeah, and I, and I think the official rule on pronunciation is you pronounce towns or, or localities the way the locals pronounce them. That becomes right. the correct way to pronounce any locality. And so let's get off of grammar and back to <laughs> strange familiar <laughs> territory. I do enjoy local stuff, you know, learning about sort of local names for things and and the right. different pronunciations or or I'm even fascinated by, you know, the whole soda pop coke phenomenon, you know, as you go oh, across right. the United States. Mm-hmm. Here it's soda, but if you get to Pittsburgh it's pop, you know, and mm-hmm. I think that mm-hmm. my wife lived in New Mexico for a while, and she said that it, everything was a Coke out there. Remember? Yeah, that's how Texas is, too. That's where my wife is from. And she said, yeah, you just ask for a Coke, and then they ask you what kind. Right, it could right. Be a Pepsi, yeah. but it's a Coke. So, yeah. So it's these books are collections of – I like what you did because I think the temptation would be for some people to just stick to ghost stories today, say, mm-hmm. or, or, or stick to cryptids or stick to UFOs. And it's just a variety. You, and they're great stories because you can sit down, you can read one, you can read two, or you can go through the whole book if you want. But, right. uh, you, you know, you don't need to, you don't need to have a bookmark even because you can just, you know, grab a story in whatever order you want. And they're just wonderful little stories. It's just, you know, each book is chock full of these wonderful little accounts. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I when I got interested in the paranormal and and growing up, I grew up in a house that was well over 100 years old and it was very active. But what was interesting is my parents were very adamant that we not talk about it. I have an older sister and a younger brother, and you know we would have these things go on, but my parents would not let us talk outside of the house about it. And because I got so interested in it, and I wasn't able to share it at first, I would go and learn everything I could about the paranormal, and that actually opened me up to Bigfoot and to UFOs, and just the entire thing opened up to me. So when I did start interviewing people, I didn't want to just restrict it to ghosts or this or that, because 
so many people had different stories, you know, involving UFOs or involving Bigfoot or cryptids or anything. And I just wanted to encompass all of that because that's my love is just paranormal in general. So I think it has a wide appeal in that sense. There's a lot of these wonderful kind of sort of pioneer ghosts and and ghosts of trappers and so forth throughout, which Mm -hmm. gives it this kind of local flavor. But I don't you know, you don't have to be from the area. So I've never been to the area. I don't know the area at all. I've never been to that part of the country. But uh, the, the stories are just wonderful and very evocative of the area. Oh yeah, thank you. It's yeah, it's such a, a diverse kind of place. Um, Northern Utah is, you know, what I love about Cache Valley is where I grew up, and I'm I actually still live here. Is you know, you're only ten minutes from the mountains, um, you're ten minutes from the wilderness, and even though you kind of live in a, a city type environment, not big cities, but you're you're so close to the outdoors, and it does have such a rich background with trappers and pioneers and the Native Americans. And so because of that, I think that that's where a lot of the ghost stories and the paranormal are steeped in that in this area. Like right. most, most areas have different kind of backstories to them. So. Sure, yeah, like a, you go to Gettysburg and you get a ton of Civil War stuff, you know. Right. It's, right. it's just the sort of – but, uh, yeah, that, it, these sort of – you know, character of the landscape, for lack of a better word, like comes through. It's it's really really neat in these mm-hmm. stories. So, did you get all these by interview by interviewing different people? Well, yeah. So it, what happened? Like like I mentioned, uh, growing up in this house where it was very active. And again, my when I was younger, my parents were very adamant we not share the stories. But as I got older and into my teens, I had friends that would come over to the house. And they would have experiences in the house. For example, I remember I was upstairs with one of my friends. We were in high school. We are studying for a test. And all of a sudden, she throws her book down and just stares at me. And I kind of stopped what I was doing. And I'm like, what's, what's going on? And she says, well, what was that? And I said, what was what? And she says, well, we've been upstairs for about 20 minutes. And three times somebody has walked upstairs, but there's nobody on your stairs. And at that point, you know, things like that had kind of become background noise to me. Mm-hmm. So I said, oh, I said, yeah, well, I had to admit my house was haunted. And because some of my friends would have experiences, then what happened is I would go to parties or we'd be on double dates. And, and one of my friends would bring up, oh, you know, John's house is haunted. Why don't he should share some stories? So I would share my stories. And inevitably, later on, people would start started coming to me and say, hey, I had this experience. And by the time I was 17 or 18, I I really started interviewing them and writing their stories down. And even back then, I knew I wanted to do some a book, at least a book. So it kind of started from there with people coming to me, hearing from about my stories, and then kind of word of mouth. People would have experience or something, and they'd go, oh, my friend John interviews people, and you should tell him the story. And so it for a long time, it was just word of mouth that I started gaining all of these stories. So that's how I originally started until my first book came out. And then, you know, people started coming to me even more with their stories. Right. Yeah. Then it starts to snowball. Right. Exactly. Yeah. After my first book, I started getting all these. Yeah, I never thought I'd get two books out of this one locale <laughs> we have here. 
And but uh, people started coming at me with these stories. I'm like, oh, that should have been in the book, you know, yeah. one after another. It's like, all right, I'm doing a second book. Right, exactly. So you grew up in a haunted house. I did, yeah. I remember by the time I was eight years old, I knew that my house was very different than um, some of my friends. It was built in the mid-1830s, so it was uh, one of the first homes built uh, in this little town that I grew up in. And I remember, in particular, I mentioned the the footsteps on the stairs. That was one of the first things that my sister and I uh, noticed, and is that any time during the day and at night, you could hear either heavy footsteps going up and down the stairs or even uh, kids' footsteps running up and down the stairs. And so the first – my sister and I coined the term the stair monster is what we named it because, you know, as little kids, that's what you – you know, you kind of go to the monster thing. But, right, right. Um, so that was one of our fir- the first experiences that I remember. But there were a lot of things that happened uh, growing up in that house. Objects moving, things going missing, uh, things showing up that, that weren't originally there. I remember um, there was a time that uh, I walked into the kitchen and there was – a little toy gun sitting on the on there, and I'm like, well, I, I I don't remember this ever being my toy gun, and I picked it up, and it was an extremely old one, and an old cap gun, and I asked my brother or family, nobody had seen it, so things would go missing and things would show up. One of the things that happened quite a bit, and has actually happened to my my children too, as they've grown up and visited grandma and grandpa, they my parents still live in the home, and it is still active. I remember there were several times I would be in one room and my mother would call me to the kitchen. And so I'd get up and go into the kitchen and no one would be in the kitchen. And I'd finally hunt down, find where my mother was. And she would say, no, I didn't call you and nobody called you. So it was a lot of trickster stuff that would go on. It never felt evil or mean, but it definitely had kind of a trickster feel to it a lot. Hmm. Yeah, the items appearing and disappearing, especially appearing, especially things you've never seen before, like that that toy, that's always so fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it just sets your mind wondering: was was this some other child's toy that you know was there before you that disappeared on them? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, because I had a lot of toys that that I would sit down and they would disappear and they may show up a month or two later or they may not, you know, never show up again. So yeah, I often wondered that if there was a kid living there a long time ago and, and his toys disappeared and then they reappeared for me. It was, it was very interesting. So it sounds, you know, not, not incredibly scary, but it sounds like it was whatever entity this was, was, was somewhat interested in letting you know it was there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and to play pranks um, on on us. Um, it it was interesting because it seems to to choose people that seem a little bit more annoyed by it or scared. I don't know if you'd say scared, but for example, my oldest son Cody, it always seemed to pick on him a little bit more than everybody else when he was there. One story I'll I'll share real quick. My mother had a snowman. And it was a heavy snowman, uh, had a base, about four feet tall, made out of cloth. And 
whenever she had it in the front room during Christmas time, it would move quite a bit. And my oldest son, he didn't he didn't really like the snowman because of that, because it would move. During the summertime, it would be in the basement in storage. And one summer, when my son was about 15, he was over helping Grandpa do chores. And one of the things that he was doing for my dad was painting the basement. And to get into the storage in the basement, there's only one one stairway in. And he was at the bottom of the stairway painting in the little hallway, and he got a very creepy feeling. And he stuck his head into the room, and the snowman was in the corner but turned and facing towards him. And so he went into the storage, and, and he muscled it around so it was pointing into this corner because he, he never really liked the snowman. <laughs> and he went back to painting, and he had his headphones on. And he said after about 10 or 15 minutes, he got this really creepy feeling again. And so he peeked his head around the corner into the, the basement. And not only had the snowman turned all the way around, but it was about halfway across the room <laughs> towards him. Oh. And he, he put down the stuff and, and went upstairs and, and told Grandpa he was not going to do any more painting until the snowman was out of the house. And so my dad ended up having to put it outside on the porch uh, in order to get uh, Cody to go back down and do any work in the basement whatsoever. So, How old was he at this time? About 15 at the time. So. <laughs> That's great, though. I mean, it's creepy. You know, uh-huh. it's anything that happens with, like... I, so I do a lot of paranormal conventions and stuff, you know, mm-hmm. selling my books and so forth. And it's very big for the, these ghost people to come with haunted dolls and stuff. It seems like anything with, with like, kids' toys or dolls has that extra creepy vibe for some reason. Yeah, yeah, it does. It's it's very interesting how that is. Mm-hmm. Um. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I have two favorite stories, one from each book. Oh, okay. If if we can talk about them, I mean, you the, bet. so I think it's one from each book. I think it's the, from the first book, the trapper that saves the, the the kid. Oh yeah, yeah. So yep, that's in the first book. Yeah. Um. So uh, what happened? This uh, this was actually a good friend of mine that I kind of uh, grew up with, and he brought this story to me. He was a um, young man, about 12, 13 years old, and there up the one of the main canyons from where I grew up was a winter scout camp. It was called Wapiti, and you would go up, and I remember doing this myself. You would go and stay in, in these Quonsets. They had a, a stove and then a bunch of just um, places for the scouts to sleep, and there was hills, and so you'd go up in the winter and spend all night sledding and playing games. And so they'd just gone sledding, and he said that a bunch of them had decided that they were going to go and do hide-and-seek. So they went out to go do some hide-and-seek, hide and, and it was – if you've ever been out in the winter when it's clear skies and the, and the moon is out, it's really bright with the with the snow. Right. But yeah. it was, it was kind of like that. So he'd gone out and gone down near the river 
there was some brush uh, down by the river, and he decided he was going to hide down there. And so he's hiding in the brush, and he's crawling along just outside of the brush to look and see if he can see where anybody is that might be looking for him. And all of a sudden, on the other side of the river, there's this gentleman standing there with his horse. And he recognized him as a trapper with his skins. He's got his old outfit on, his horse, his rifle, and he's kind of taken back that he's seeing this trapper out there. And the trapper looks at him, and he starts signaling for him to go back with his hand. The trapper's pointing and and signaling that he needs to go back. So he starts backing up back through the brush, and at one point, part of his coat gets caught, so he, he looks around to unhook it, and when he looks back around, the trapper's gone. He can't see where he would have gone, and so he runs back to camp, and he's really kind of weirded out by it. And the next day, next morning, him and his friend, they go over there in the light because he wants to see where the tracks lead where this this guy has gone to and he gets over there and there's no tracks on that side of the river whatsoever and so he's really confused and wondering what it is and he looks across the river where he was where he had climbed out from under the brush and realizes that where he was crawling there was a cornice that's where the snow goes up over the river and if he had continued to go the way he had uh, he would have fallen through that cornice into the extremely cold um, river and in the middle of the night who knows if anybody would have heard him scream or anything and so he really believed that this um, this trapper that had been sent or this ghost whatever it was had saved his life that night yeah so that's such an amazing story i just i love it yeah it's really cool even telling it now i kind of get goosebumps it's one of my favorite stories as well so yeah it's, it's really good and I, I mean, we'll get to some other stories, but from the second book, the story about the the little troll guy. That, yeah, like, the guy woke up. That was terrifying. Yeah, it was. It's that's a really interesting story. So, um, I I had a he. This gentleman came to me through somebody else and to tell the story and just to kind of get a background. You know, when I interview people, I I get a feeling. You know, when you talk to somebody, you kind of get a feeling of whether they're feeding you, you know, a story they made up or if it's something that really happened to you. And as this gentleman was telling me this story, I can I can just sense the fear in his voice as he's telling this story because it's it's kind of a fantastic story. I'll get into it. He he had moved to Cache Valley. He'd come to visit a friend and just fell in love with the area when he was in his early 20s. And so he loved to hike. He loved the outdoors. So one day he decides uh, him and his buddy are going to go on a hike. It's a hike up to one of the tallest peaks called Mount Naomi uh, on the Cache National Forest. And at the last minute, his friend has to cancel. So he decides he's going to go anyway. You know, when you're in your 20s, you're fearless. You you don't worry about too much. I have and, a, I won't get into it because I've told it a, a hundred times on the podcast, but it, I have a story that starts the exact same way. And I wasn't right. in my 20s. This is from a couple years ago where I, I wanted to do this hike. My friend stood me up and I'm, like, I'm doing it alone. I don't care. And then something right. crazy happened on the hike. But anyway, no, sorry. Yeah. No, you're fine. I've had, you know, when I was in my 20s, I did the same, you know. But so he decides he's going to go. It's late august and 
there's a burn restriction uh, here in the West. A lot of times, especially that time of year, uh, if there's a lot of forest fires and it's everything's dry, they they put a no burn notice uh, on the forest. So. Mm-hmm. He just packs some food uh, that he can eat, and he takes his pack with a, a, his bedroll. It's not a real long hike, but he's leaving late in the day, and he doesn't want to rush. So he figures, you know, he likes to spend time in the wilderness. So he parks his car at this lake. It's called Tony Grove. It's uh, You drive up to it, and then from there you take the trail. And because it's so high up, it's mostly just trees and rocks. You get so high, you're you're getting close to um, the tree line, so not as much grows. But there's a lot of boulder outcroppings. And so he hikes up quite a ways, and it gets later, and so he decides he's going to make camp. So he goes about 40 yards off the trail by some trees and has his little dinner, puts out his bedroll, watches the stars, and then... One of the things he always does is he brings a book. He always brings a book with him in a headlamp so that he can read and get tired and go to sleep. So he does this and falls asleep. And he's a very heavy sleeper. He says he's a very heavy sleeper. And he wakes up with a start, and he's a little confused because he's not sure what has woken him up. It's really dark. He's sitting there and trying to decide whether to go back to sleep. He realizes that it's really very quiet um, which is unusual and then he hears a a whistle and he said you know i knew it wasn't a bird because birds don't generally whistle at night and it didn't sound like a bird whistle it sounded like somebody trying to get your attention and so you know he got out of his bedroll and put his shoes on and he's trying to figure out exactly what's going on and about this time he gets hit in the chest with a rock about the size of a quarter and it wasn't really hard but kind of like to get his attention throws a rock at him and he's really confused and um, kind of upset at this point and it's at this point he realizes oh my my headlamp is still on my head so he flicks the headlamp on and shines it towards the area where the rock came from and where the whistling's coming from and about 15, 20 feet from him, not really far, there's a pile of rocks, and crouched on the rocks is a creature. And the creature, he explained it, the way he's explaining it to me, he's got green-gray skin, very sharp features with the ears and teeth and nose, and it has old ragged clothes on, almost like handmade ragged clothes. And when he's explaining this to me, one thing that pops into my mind is from Harry Potter, the the creatures at the bank, the mm-hmm. goblins at the bank. That's what kind of came to me. He said it would be about four feet tall if it was standing up, but it was, it was crouched on its haunches and kind of covering his face uh, with his light on it. And... He go, he kind of goes into shock because it's not something – you know. he said he's never had an, a paranormal experience before or after this. But you, know, you don't expect to see something like this. And as he's lowering the headlamp a little bit, he notices it's trying to slide something behind it um, on the rock. And he looks and he realizes that this creature has his book in his hand and – it hits him that this creature has been close enough to slip the book out from underneath him while he was asleep. And it kind of snaps him out of it and snaps him into his fight or flight kind of thing. 
And so he just hurries and, and scoops up his, his bedroll and his backpack and everything and runs for the trail. He gets about to the trail and trips and falls and his stuff goes and he's trying to gather up all his stuff and he starts hearing the whistling again coming from behind him. And he finally gets his stuff gathered up and he, he runs all the way down the trail to, to his vehicle, throws everything in and drives home in the middle of the night. And, you know, he said it took him for a long time to share that story with anybody. He still doesn't like to share the story with anybody. Because it just sounds he's, – he's afraid people are going to think he's crazy. But, you know, he swears up and down that that's, it wasn't a dream. He didn't imagine it. That's exactly what had happened to him. But after I got the interview from him, I, I did some research. And there, the Native Americans uh, across the United States actually have a creature that they talk about that is described exactly like what he described. And I always slaughter the name – but it's the Pogwaji, mm-hmm. uh, something like that, which gave credibility to his story in, in my mind because he'd never heard of that before. But it's it's in Native American lore. And oddly enough, there's actually stories of these creatures all over the world. But, yes. but different people have different names for them, you know, in Africa and and in Europe and, and all of these things. So it's it's very interesting. I found that, that that's one of my favorite stories uh, is, yes. is that one. Really creepy. Our our local, you know, they generally call them little people. Our local mm-hmm. little person is called the Albatwitch. It's it's a uh, German name for that. Oh Pen- yeah, Pennsylvania Germans. But it's essentially the same creature as the Puckwudgie. Now they're often described as hair covered, but sometimes not. You know, sometimes uh-huh. sometimes not. But they seem to behave the same way. But uh, interesting. The there's a big uh, thing with the Albatwitch with whistling, and <laughs> some of the local folklore says that they actually have something called a welcome whistle. That if you can learn it, and some of these old hunters say that that you know you can learn this welcome whistle, you can call them out of the woods. Oh, it's, wow. it's a certain pattern of whistles, but uh-huh. you know, again, we have a creature, you know, whistling. That's part. Yeah, of it. these little people are not nice. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm gathering from my research as well. Is that they're just not really kind uh, individuals. Yeah, yeah. In fact, some of the some of the uh, First Nations legends will they will tell you, you know. If you see a Bigfoot, be very careful and, you know, kind of make your way out of the area. But if you see one of these little people, run. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's that's amazing. But um, it's there's some places like um, in Iceland, uh, they will still, uh, you know, change when they're making new roads. Mm-hmm. If they're going towards an area where these kinds of creatures are known for they will actually divert the building of the road to not disturb them which i find fascinating that you know there's cultures that are still doing that kind of thing yeah there there's a wonderful story about an airport being built in iceland i think in world war ii and it was for it was basically an american air base and the icelandic people were you know the construction was going really slow and it's driving the americans crazy and they said, well, we're just not going to move this mound. Some guy, I think a guy had a dream or something. And one of these little people came to him in the dream and said, give us, you know, two weeks or whatever it was to get our families out before you do anything here. And he, wow. he would not touch this mound for that amount of time. And it, it was, of course, the Americans were just going nuts. Like, no, you know, <laughs> it's like they, they absolutely refused to do it. It's, it's a, just a wonderful story. Oh, I do nuts. have a, a question. And you might not know the answer to this, but do you know what the book was? 
the um you know i i can't i can't remember what it was i remember that he he mentioned that um he he read a lot of john grisham but i'm not sure exactly what the which book it was right, um, right. that it stole yeah yeah, I was just curious, you know, if it was a novel, if it was nonfiction, if it was, you know, a religious book, or or what, what the case. No, was. yeah, it was, it was, it was like a John Grisham. Just um, he 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 said it was a paper, you know, a paperback that he could throw in, right? Uh, that that he could read. So you know, so that's what I'm. If I'm vaguely remembering, it was something like a just a John Grisham, uh, Tom Clancy, something like right. That. Yeah, some some sort of fiction. That's so yeah. interesting, though, and and like. There's a million questions that like, did, what does the creature want with the book? You know, right, like, right. And, yeah. and what did it do with it? And if you went back, you know, a couple of days later, would you find the book sitting there, or is the book just gone? It's yeah, it's probably just gone. I don't know what you know. That was another thing with the Native American legend. Um, they talked about them, you know, being thieves and like to steal things and um. Did like to shoot arrows at you if you get too close or irritating and just some of the things like that I remember reading about them. But yeah, yeah. And, it's and interesting. Poisoned arrows, too, in some cases, which is... Yeah. Know, they're supposed to be really nasty. Uh, right. Our little albatwitches, look, they, they, uh, they're they known for stealing apples. People uh-huh. would be picnic- picnicking or whatever, and they would come and, and steal the apples and then you know throw them back at them sometimes, <laughs> so forth. But, uh, yeah, that's, oh, no, that's the, cool. those little people legends are really neat. And they're consistent, you know, across the United States and, and really, like you said, are kind of across the world in all these right. different cultures. They have very, very consistent descriptions and, and behaviors amongst these, mm-hmm. whatever these things are. Yeah. So do you have any personal favorites? Um, You know, well, one of them that – another section that I have, um, you know, I, I cover – ghosts and ufos and bigfoot and cryptids uh, i had a section in in my newer book and i actually have another one in the book that is coming out because that's called glitches in the matrix kind of mm-hmm. just strange things that don't necessarily fall into the categories of the other ones right that um and and one that kind of stands out to me uh, from the second book in the glitches of the matrix i interviewed this kid uh, he'd gone to utah state that's here in cash valley it was around finals time. He was studying for finals. It was a nice day. So he drove up onto uh, campus with his bike onto the quad by uh, a building is called Old Main. And he's up there just studying for his test. And all of a sudden, he, he realizes that there's somebody standing in front of him on, on the sidewalk. So he looks up from, you know, from his studies, expecting to see one of his friends. And he's actually staring into his own face. And he's kind of dumbfounded as to what's going on. And as he takes in the big picture, he realizes that he's looking at himself. Uh, same clothes, uh, same bicycle that he had. The only difference between the guy standing in front of him and himself was he he was a big fan of um, the Seattle Seahawks. And the guy in front of him is wearing a Seattle Seahawks hat like his the only difference is the colors were different um they were a red color and something else which didn't make any sense to him and as he's staring at himself basically he comes to it and so does the person looking at him and uh, the other him jumps on his bike and takes off he jumps up grabs his bike and tries to chase him down and as he he goes around the corner and basically the other the other him disappears and he rides around trying to find him and 
he was really kind of weirded out because he didn't know, you know, it was a, it was more than just a doppelganger type thing because, you know, he was wearing similar clothes, same clothes, same bike. And so uh, I just found that one really fascinating. Did he happen to find a rip between dimensions? Did he stumble across something stranger than that? I'm not I'm not sure, but I, I really liked that one. That one was kind of an interesting story. Yeah, and I, I love the detail of just, like, so basically the team colors were different, essentially. I mean, we, yeah. we, we can guess wherever this guy came from. <laughs> Everything yeah. else is the same. Everything else is the same, yeah. Yeah, that's so weird. And you have a you know a few stories of things that that you know could be ghosts or could be like time slips the same mm-hmm. kind of thing in there where right. where is it is it a ghost or is it somebody just seeing you know a window into another time right yeah and and that that fascinates me too um, I I studied a lot about uh, the Mandela effect and people um, in my in my new book coming out I have a story uh, this gentleman shared with me where. Uh, I'll just go through it basically, but um, he grew up in a town in Colorado, small town. He left for a couple years and went back before he went to school, and one of his good friends had passed away, and uh, this was in a t- you know in the early 90s before you had the internet where everybody keeps up with everybody, and uh, anyway, he found out that one of his good friends, uh, Diana, had passed away, and he even went to her grave and felt really bad about that he goes off to school gets married you know uh, several years later he comes back i mean he come back off and on but he comes back for thanksgiving and uh, with his family visiting his parents and his mother had forgot something for dinner so he volunteers to go to the store to pick it up and he goes to the store and has he's looking for the whipped cream is what it was he comes around the corner and runs into diana and he's kind of dumbfounded. He's like, well, you know, in his mind, he's like, you passed away. What's going on? And he catches up with her. And his in his memory, she had died from an appendicitis. And he just happened to ask her. And she goes, oh, I had a really bad appendicitis that burst. But luckily, I pulled through. And he drives right from there to the cemetery. Uh, and sure enough, the headstone is different. It's just his memory of that time is completely different than the reality now. Wow, and it's kind of strange. But yeah, well, I guess it's like it's like the other thing. It's just so weird. And, and where do you you know catalog that? I mean, I guess glitch in right. the matrix is as best as you could do. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Strange Familiars is brought to you by our patrons. Without our patrons, we could not make the show. Thank you, patrons, for your support. If you would like to help us and get extra shows, you can go to patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. For $3 a month, you will get extra episodes of Strange Familiars. We do at least one full extra episode a month. Most months we try to do two extra episodes. But there are also other levels of support there as well. If you want to go in at a little higher level, you can get things like stickers, pins, t-shirts, and more. You can check it all out at patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. We are working on a patron show. The next one should be coming up soon. 
It will be called The Grave of the Wolfman. To hear that and every episode of Strange Familiars, consider becoming a patron at Patreon. If you don't like the idea of a monthly subscription, or if you have the means to help out with a one-time donation, if you go to strangefamiliars.com, in the show notes there's a paypal.me link, and you can make a one-time contribution there. So we're continuing our talk with John Olson, Stranger Bridgeland, and beyond Stranger Bridgeland. Do you ever do like active investigations, you know, ghost hunts, uh, go encrypted investigations, anything like that? There's not a group that I necessarily go with. There has been a couple groups that I've gone on with investigations, and I've actually helped people because of my background. I've had people come to me who uh, have said, you know, I think my house is haunted or I think this is going on, and and I kind of do an interview with them and and give them some ideas uh, on what to do. And if there's a if there's a bigger problem or something like that, I, I tend to point them into uh, directions of of somebody that I I trust that would come in and do a thorough more thorough investigation. But a lot of times. Uh, I try, you know, when I when I interview people and I talk about it, about what's going on, um, as long as it's not connected to an individual or an object, then, you know, I kind of talk through. Uh, and I, my biggest thing is if it's if it's just a ghost, ghosts are just people who have passed on. And just like meeting people on the street, nine out of ten people you meet are going to be pretty nice people. It's that one out of ten that might be a jerk right, that, you, right. that you might have to deal with. And a lot of times I find when people are having problems, if they're just open with whatever it is, and for example, you know, if, if it's something that's scaring one of their kids or scaring them, and if they're open and they say, hey, look, you know, I live here, I realize you're here you're scaring my daughter, you're scaring me, a lot of times it will go away, uh, and, and that solves it. I tend to, to when, especially when it comes to demonic stuff, you know, there's there's obviously people that are a lot more uh, adept at dealing with that kind of thing. But that's, I, I really, you know, you watch some of the, the television shows and you would think that every other haunted house is demonic, and it really isn't. You know, the the... Some of the television shows that they show, they get people ramped up and, and you know, they're automatically into, oh, my, you know, there's a demon in my house. And, and that's just not really the case in most in most uh, instances. Right, right, I, yeah. I hope that answered your question. I kind of went out on it. Sure, about, yeah. I mean, so, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and especially if it's in, in, the, in the mountains and stuff like that, I love to go do an investigation. I'll go with somebody who's telling me a story, if they can, to the area that it happened so right. that I can get a feel for it. That's so. uh, I, I absolutely love to do that. Like, yeah. I was out in the field yesterday, drove oh. two hours basically to, to see something, <laughs> this bit of folklore from 200 years ago or mm-hmm. more. But I had to go. I had to, I had to see where it, where it went down. Right, yeah. There's just something about being there that that you just don't get necessarily any other way. So yeah. How many oh, man. Bigfoot stories do you get? Do you get a lot? You know, I get I get quite a few uh, Bigfoot stories. Um, there's there's an area in the mountains here of Cache Valley, 
And I get a lot of stories from that section. Uh, you know, I could draw a circle in that area in probably a three-mile radius. And uh, people who don't even realize or know each other have stories in that area where, where there seems to be a lot of Bigfoot activity. I can share with you one of my favorite one. Sure, If please. you'd like. Yeah. Um, so I had this gentleman come to me. I worked with him. And um, his name was – his name's John. And he's like, oh, I heard that you, you know, that you interview people and you get stories. He says, I've got a really good story that happened to me. And I says, yeah. So I, I sat down and interviewed him. And he was a manager of a lodge uh, in the mountains. Um, and it's up in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I think the closest place is Bear Lake. And it's something like 15 miles away. And so what they would do is he was one of the managers, and so the managers would be, you know, three days on, three days off. You'd just stay there and spend the night. There was a manager's uh, room there. And uh, he was uh, staying there, uh, and it was the middle of the week, a Thursday night in September. And it's really kind of dead that time of year because it's between the summer vacationers and the skiers. And so – there's not a lot going on. And he had one couple that was staying the night there. And they had checked in and everything was going well. So he went to bed. And about midnight, uh, 1 o'clock, there's a bang on his door. And so he gets up and answers it. And it's the gentleman that's staying there. And he says, I want to check out. Me and my wife want to check out. And he's like, well, what's wrong? Is there something wrong? You know, can I fix something? And the guy ho-hummed about it, and he goes, no, he says, we just, he said, well, we were on the balcony, and the balcony overlooks the parking lot and the grass, and he said, an animal ran across, and he goes, well, we're in the mountains, there's lots of animals here, and he goes, no, this ran on two feet, and it was really big, <laughs> and he's like, okay, so he walked down and checked the, the gentleman out, and he said, they ran upstairs, and ran out and threw all their stuff in the car and just took off out of the parking lot. And he thought that was really strange. So he went down to the office and went to go file the paperwork in the office. And in the office, there was one big window uh, towards the west. And the moon was kind of almost full that night. And as he put the paperwork away and turned off the light, he noticed that there's a shadow coming from the window and it's just a great big head and shoulders with very little neck. And so he realizes there's something standing just outside of the window behind him. And he got really nervous. So he slipped out of the door and turned the light off, or slipped out of the door and shut the door. And he realizes that whatever this giant creature is, there's just between, there's only a little door between him and this giant creature outside of the outside. And just then, there's a large bang on the back of the uh, the building. It said it sounded like he got hit with a boulder. Mm. And so he got really nervous and ran up to the room. And he's sitting on the bed in the room trying to figure out what to do. He doesn't want to call his boss and say that he's being attacked by creatures. And just then, he sees a car coming down the driveway from the main road. And so he runs down, and it's uh, the highway patrolman. Uh, the highway patrolman, they always have one that patrols the canyon. And he came to the door and, and he asked him, he says, have you had anything strange happen tonight? 
and he kind of explained to the officer what was going on, and the officer said that somebody had called in and said there was a creature or somebody in a gorilla suit running across the road in front of people, and there's no reason that anybody would be doing that in the middle of the night in September up there. It's it's pretty dead. Yeah, yeah. And so it's it's very interesting. So, but he had the opportunity. He asked the officer before he left. He said, "You know, do you see a lot of strange things?" And the officer was quiet. And he says, "Well, we're not really allowed to talk about some of the stranger things that we see." Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was all that he said. So, yeah. So did that occur within that sort of you know three mile radius that you were talking about? Yeah, it did actually. Yep, it mm-hmm. it occurred in that three that three mile radius. And not very long ago, I interviewed a, a woman for my new book, and she had encountered uh, a juvenile Sasquatch not far from there at all that she had seen. So that's really kind of an active area. It's called yeah. the Sinks area. It's the Sinks, a kind of area up there. My story for Woodknox Volume Three just concentrated on eight square miles in, in uh, Southern York County, Pennsylvania here, where oh, there's yeah. just some, in, there's just an intense amount of sightings within this eight square miles. That's uh, pretty incredible. So that, that kind of, that's another thing is kind of like checks a box for me. Yeah. It makes sense. You know? Yeah. Well, I don't yeah. know why it makes sense. It makes sense in as much as I've heard, you know, similar stories. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. Uh, I love, I love Bigfoot stories. In fact, someday I would really like to see one. I have not seen one yet, but, uh, that's definitely on my bucket list. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think I want to see one at a distance. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I, I don't want to, I don't want that up close. You know, I guess you get these stories sometimes of people like them peeking in the window. Mm-hmm. I've gotten one recently and the guy was very matter of fact about it. And and uh, I was like, I don't know that I think okay, that'd be the last time I look out a window. I think, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I I don't know if I you know I, I if you're out looking for it, you know. So I do a lot of Bigfoot investigations. I, I think you know at that point you're prepared, you know. But right. if you just look over the window and it's there, I I don't know how I'd handle that. I, you know. Yeah, it would be a little bit disheartening. I yeah, think. yeah, it might <laughs> it might be an underwear change. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) You've been very kind in sharing the stories, and you want to give us one more? Sure. Um, Let me think. Oh, um, another one that's uh, kind of my favorite. One of my favorite. I I guess they're all my favorite. Yeah, I know how that is, too. You know how that is? Right, yeah. It's kind of like your children. You hate to pick, you know, your absolute favorite one. But uh, there was – this gentleman came to me and telling me the story of him and his brother – who were uh, deer hunting. Um, This was in the late 70s, early 80s. I can't remember exactly when. And they were in an area called Scare Canyon, and I've been there several times. I I know exactly where it is. And they'd been hunting all day and not seen very many people. And it was getting to be dusk, and they were kind of sitting on the hill glassing and and, uh, looking for deer. And all of a sudden, they can hear somebody crying, and they look at each other, and, and they can hear a young boy crying or a young kid. And so they kind of take off down and go through the – they're going through the brush heading towards where they can hear this kid crying. And his brother's in the front. His brother was a little older than him. He was about 16. His brother's about 19. And they come to a, a, just a little opening, and there's a rock in and amongst the brush. And here's this little boy curled up with his um, – knees up to his chest and his head buried and he's crying 
it was either him or his, or his brother asks, are you okay? And the boy looks up. He says he remembers he's wearing overalls. He's got uh, no shoes on, dirty feet. His face was covered in dirt, and he'd been crying. So there was these, you know, tear tracks through his through the dirt on his face. And he points down towards his uh, left and their right. And they look down there to see what he's pointing at, but they can't see anything. And when they look back, he disappears. This kid disappears. Mm. And he's kind of just in shock. And finally, his brother punches him in the shoulder, and, and they both take off uh, up and out of the brush and back to the vehicle, back to the car. All the way down, he's trying to get his brother to talk to him, and his brother won't talk about it. And he said it took his brother years to talk about it. But when his brother finally did share, it was obvious his brother had the exact same uh, – he saw the exact same thing he did with the little boy. Uh, almost looked like a little pioneer boy that was lost or missing. And uh, I asked him if he ever went back to see the area where the boy was pointing, and he said he didn't. He he actually never hunted in that area again. Hmm. So I don't, I don't know what he was pointing at. You know, it might – be interesting to know what the kid was pointing out or trying to point out to them or, right. or what exactly was going on but that's definitely kind of a, a spooky scary uh, ghost experience yeah and you know if it's one of those situations where they're looking back in time you know you wonder you hope the kid made it back to wherever yeah. he you know hope he wasn't lost and and maybe yeah. he had a story about seeing two weird guys in, <laughs> in in strange clothing you know yeah exactly yeah you just never know you yeah. just never know so I love the books, Stranger Bridgeland, Beyond Stranger Bridgeland. I think, as we were talking, I think I, I figured out what it is. It's it's witness accounts. That's what that's why I love so many paranormal radio shows like Sasquatch Chronicles, and that's why I try to have witnesses on telling their stories on Strange Familiars. I love witness accounts, and what you've done is just documented a whole bunch of witness accounts about a, a bunch of strange stuff. It just occurred to me now. I was like, that's why I like these books so much. So um, I think people that like Strange Familiars will, will really enjoy these books because it's just a collection of witness accounts. It's really neat stuff. Frank. Thank you, well, John thank Olson. Your books are available. Is the best place for people get them from you? or? You know what? They're on, they're on Amazon. They're on Amazon. There is a uh, – both of them, both Stranger Bridgerland and Beyond Stranger Bridgerland, uh, either the the – you know, hardback. Well, I call hardback. There's only one, you know, physical uh, copy, and then they're also there um, in Kindle form too. So that's a great place. Uh, I also have StrangerBridgerland.com, uh, which is you can go on there and find out more information about it, or contact me if you have stories. Or so those are your main places to find them. So okay, very good, John Olson, Stranger Bridgerland. Did I say it right? Yes. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and beyond Stranger Bridgeland, thank you so much for coming on Strange Familiars. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will be back next week with more Strange Familiars. And even more than that for patrons. You can also help support the show by sharing our episodes around with social media, leaving good reviews at iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you listen, and just generally spreading the word about Strange Familiars. 
Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. DarkHollerArts.com. Intro and background music is by Stonebreath. Go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com for more. If you're on Facebook, you can find Strange Familiars on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars. You can also join the Strange Familiars gathering group there.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.